Hello and welcome to the RPG Academy's The Reviews. All right, so we're going to be reviewing Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen. And this is Tom coming at you, and I'm not joined by Michael for this review. I'm joined by a special guest, friend of the show, much beloved tabletop personality, Chris Burlew. What's up, Chris? Hello. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Um, yeah. Uh, Chris is, I guess, your big Dragonlance fan? A little bit. I've uh, been seventh grade is when I first found him, so uh, a couple days ago. Okay. All right. So that's... Okay. Gotcha. So you've been... Okay. So Michael wanted to opt out of this review because he wasn't a huge Dragonlance fan. I don't know why. Uh, I'm not sure. Chris, though, is. So what we did was we received review copies from Wizards of the Coast. They sent us the regular cover, the alternate cover, and then they sent us the Warriors of... How do you say it? Is it Kern? Kryn. 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 They sent us the Warriors of Kryn board game, which comes with another copy of the book. So Michael kept Warriors of Kryn, all right? And he sent Chris the alt cover. Mm -hmm. And then I got sent the regular cover okay of the book all right uh so uh yeah so thank you wizards so just get that disclaimer out there that we were sent three copies okay so uh before we dive too deep into it so what is this book this is a adventure module not a campaign book, which I thought it was going to be. Chris, did you think this was... Was this just me? Was I the only one who thought this was going to be like a campaign book and not an adventure? I thought it was going to be a setting book like they used okay. to do in first edition, second edition. I, I'm su very surprised, pleasantly surprised with how they tied a board game in with the actual module. I think okay. that's a really neat idea. Uh, okay. We tried this... Back when I was in college, we didn't have an actual board game, so we actually used Risk to kind of simulate mass battles. Oh, interesting. And that was okay. the idea of, you know, like I played one team, you played the other, and that's kind of how it worked. But okay. I, I was very surprised and very pleasantly surprised on how they did it. Okay, interesting. Uh, yeah, so yeah, like Chris was saying, there's a board game tie-in, and this is an adventure module, and not the setting book. But this book is, it's honestly, it's a, it's not their longest adventure book, uh, but it's its like a, the adventure itself is roughly around 170 pages or so. The book itself is just over 200, all right? Mm -hmm. There's some rules, the adventure, and then obviously some magic items and monsters. All right, the book was... Uh, developed by the in-house Wizards of the Coast team. So this wasn't a freelance project like uh, Journey to the Radiant Citadel or Candlekeep Mysteries or any of those other ones that I didn't like. Um, so this is one of the the in-house books. Uh, uh, there's new rules that were developed by Jeremy Crawford. And we do get a... Originally, the Dragonlance setting was created by... this is It was created by Laura Hickman and Tracy Hickman, correct? Correct. Okay, that's what I thought. All right, they, there's a special thanks area that gives a bunch of credits to some old school D&D &D people. All right, so you got, you know, Larry, you know, Elmore, and then you see, like, 
uh, Bruce Nesmith and Margaret Weiss. And then buried in there is Laura Hickman and Tracy Hickman. I just thought it was funny that the book, this setting was developed by them. And they're not even the first people that get a special thanks. They're just like buried in the special thanks. There was a lot of anger in a way towards Wizards of the Coast because when they did this, they never contacted Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, who were the two main writers for the story. There was a lot of anger towards people saying, well, why didn't they involved? And I will give them credit. They both put out very nice posts saying, we don't own the IP. Wizards of the Coast is free to do whatever they want with it. We're just happy to see Dragonlance come back and to have people be able to tell stories in the world we created. So there was also the lawsuit. I don't know if you remember this. So the lawsuit, that's why there's no mention of the the old school War of the Lance or the the people, the original characters that were in the books. Because technically, actually, uh, they still own those characters. So, mm-hmm. and they can actually do what they want with them. So they have the ability to go write Dragonlance novels, all right, outside of any Wizards of the Coast licensing. All right. So they still own a piece of it. All right, so it's very it's very weird, but it's very convoluted. But yeah, I wanted to point that out uh, because this is, I don't feel like Hasbro and Wizards gave them the due credit, but it's also 5e is a much different audience than what it was before. So this book is honestly, and Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, as an old school Dragonlance lover, how do you feel like this book spoke to you as somebody who grew up with the setting? They did some things really well. And then they did other things that were, I I would say, for a a purist, more annoying than anything else. Um, They did a great job, and I'll use, I mean, I'll jump into the book a little bit. Yeah. They talk about the gods of Kryn, but then they also talk about, oh, Paladine. On other worlds, he's known as Bamut, or however you would say that one. I was like, why are you trying to tie these gods into other stories? Again, mild annoyance. Leave it alone. Most of Dragonlance books were all about the gods using Kryn as almost their chessboard to yep. outmaneuver each other. Never did they mention other worlds, realms, whatever. Yeah, that's a 5e thing where they kind of tied everything mm-hmm. together. Uh, if you Did you read the Fizzbands book? I did not. Okay, so there's a lot of Dragonlance stuff in there. It was a lot of people were annoyed when that came out too, because they have Fizban, which is Paladine, mm-hmm. all right? But they always call Fizban Behumut because they're still trying to set it in the Forgotten Realms. Okay. So, uh, but yeah, this, if you got, I did, was not a big fan of Fizzbands, and I don't think this book redeems Fizzbands at all, but uh, let's talk about the Dragonlance setting, because honestly, I was a little confused reading this book, but Chris, can you give us the, what is the setting of Dragonlance, and what's it about? Dragonlance, the nice thing is they have thousands of years of lore for the world. Uh, most of the books, the original books, were set after what was called the Cataclysm. And the Cataclysm is a huge event on Kryn. Uh, basically, the king priest of Istar became so arrogant, he demanded that he become a god, and he basically wanted to rule all the gods. 
The god said, nope, and threw a fiery mountain down on Ishtar, which changed everything. The, the lands changed, the continent changed, the oceans changed, cities were destroyed, and then the gods left Kryn and didn't have a presence on Kryn. Fast forward a thousand years later, that's where the main story starts with the main characters we're used to. They're dealing with it. They're trying to live their lives. And all of a sudden, an army starts showing up, talking about ruling the world. You have the dragon riders, and you have the dragon lords. <clears throat> and you find out Takesis, the evil queen, has basically started up an army in Naraka and is going to try to take over Kryn. You have the heroes of the Lance, who then rose through very humble beginnings and saved the world. It's very much a D&D campaign. The original books. Okay. Literally, <clears throat> at one point, I read an article that uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman wrote that talks about how they were sitting at a table role-playing as their friends were actually playing the characters to help them develop these characters for the books, which I think is a really cool idea. Okay. I would love to play a game and somebody write a book based on the characters that, you know, let's say it's you and I create. I think that'd be really neat. There's so I got to add a few questions about the setting itself. All right, because I was confused reading this book. Uh this adventure just so people there are uh it was confusing trying to there's a lot they throw out a lot of proper nouns and as somebody who doesn't know Dragonlands, when I was first reading the intro, I was very confused. I was like, what does any of this mean? And so I have a few burning questions. Okay. Okay. All right. Fair are right. metallic dragons good? Yes. Okay, they're good. Who had the Dragonlance originally? In the stories, Huma led with the Dragonlance and threw Takesis out of Kryn. Kind of during the Cataclysm, kind of during the First War. There's constantly wars on Kryn. The gods are constantly fighting, and the inhabitants of Kryn just become their chess pieces, literally. Okay, the Dragonlance is in this adventure, all mm -hmm. right? Did you get a chance to look at the, the lore bits about the Dragonlance here? And does that line up with what it used to be? Yes and no. In the, okay. in the original stories, they found some in an old crypt tomb. And then they figured out how to forge them. And one of the main kind of back characters that kept showing up, a blacksmith, he's the one that can actually forge them. But in the stories, he actually lost his arm, and then his arm was replaced by a metallic arm. And in there, okay. that's how you had to forge the dragon lances, was with this metallic arm and a special hammer. It wasn't as simple as you could just go to the market and go, hey, Tom, here's some, you know, mithril, make me a dragon lance. Like, this was a kind of a quest thing. You had to go find the hammer. You had to go find, you know, the, the, the character that had the metallic arm that could forge it. And then it took a long time. They were <clears throat> they were wielded, you know, most of the time on the back of dragons. You actually had two types, and I think they cover it. You had the footman's lance, and then the lance that was mounted on the dragons. And you had dragon riders that would wield these and ride the dragons into battle. <clears throat> Which to me was always kind of a silly concept, because you have this giant creature with this little guy on top. What's this little guy going to do? He's holding the pointy stick, and really, he's just holding on for dear life. Yeah. But, Fighting other dragon riders. Mm-hmm. 
the stories yeah. cover that because it talks about the bond between the rider and the dragon. It actually enhances both of their abilities. All right. I could, uh, there's so many other questions I have about this setting because I don't feel like the book necessarily answers all the questions, which is okay. Um, in the sense of it lets you explore some, but let's get into what this adventure is. Okay, so the adventure itself, all right, minor spoilers, okay, well, if if I'm going to drop a really big spoiler, I'll let you know, but just the overall arc of this adventure, all right, you're going to be starting as, obviously, low-level adventurers, which vary in theme with the original Dragonlance stuff. All right, you, you then slowly discover that this army is starting to move across the land it is going to be taking stuff over villages are being raised and things are not going well you eventually wind up in calaman which is a large city in the northern part of kryn and there you meet allies and you quest out to figure out what's going on with this dragon army uh Eventually, you discover that there's a lot. There's a lot of classic villains from Dragonlance who are the the they're kind of moving pieces on the board, like Chris said, which ultimately leads you to a showdown at a ancient site where they're trying to get a weapon, which will then finally all kind of accumulate at the city of Calaman for one final siege and one final battle all right and that's the kind of general arc it's very it's a this a wartime story and it's your characters being thrust into it uh maybe unwillingly or unknowingly but this is the world that they live in and they're gonna have to deal with it okay so we then but first we get this chapter one all right we get some there's some introduction about the world of kryn but then we get some character creation stuff uh so, Chris, I got to ask you, though, because we get the rules, they add the Kender race. I always hear people joke about the Kender. What's the deal with, what's the, what, who are the Kender? Why do people care about these people? The Kender replaced halflings. So okay. No halflings. Kender, Kender are a very touchy subject. So I, I will give you kind of how I view them. Kender to me are, a very innocent um, group of people. They don't believe in material possessions. They don't really believe in personal property. They don't understand the concept of, oh, Tom, you're wearing a sword. Oh, it just happened to show up in my hand. Some people have a problem with it. Like, oh, they're kleptomaniacs. No, they just don't understand that that's your property. The Kender are also, they have, they used to, and they didn't put it in here. My favorite part was their wanderlust. They went for adventure wherever, and they were super happy no matter what was happening. So kind of a Kender pride almost as they, if they went to a new city, they expected to be thrown in jail because they're Kender, and that's what everybody does to them. And they would get excited to go to the jail and see a new jail. Okay, that's okay. That's some interesting lore. That you'd hear it all the time. I've never been here. This is one of the nicest jails I've ever seen. You have sturdy locks. You're well built. This will be a challenge for me. Because of the Kender, again, they don't believe in property. They don't believe that just being locked up to them, that is a challenge. 
Because when they grew up, if you went to go to a party at the neighbor's house, the neighbors would lock the door. If you couldn't unlock the door to get in, you didn't pass the test. You couldn't come join the party. It wasn't they were teaching you how to steal. It was this is just a fun party game. So okay. Kendra just naturally learned how to pick locks and be thieves. All right. That would annoy me. <laughs> I would be the people that would get annoyed. <laughs> Playing a Kender is probably the most difficult choice you could make as a GM. Okay. Or as a player, I'm sorry. As a GM, you you would have to really sit down with the players and go, look. You know, it, like For example, Tom, if you were playing a Kender, I would say, okay, you're not going to just randomly keep stealing somebody's sword. I don't mind if you take little things off them, like maybe they wear a ring and it just keeps popping in your hand and you go, oh, here, I have that ring right here. You must have dropped it. But don't take something that could be important to them in a scene. It's okay gotcha. to have fun with it a little bit. You know, Maybe they've got a handkerchief that you keep using to blow your nose and handing it back to them. You know, have a little fun with it, but don't go to the extreme of, well, I'm a Kender. I just keep stealing things. That makes sense. The Kender, though, they do get, I laugh so hard about this. They get a fearless ability, which kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're what you're saying, they kind of just go for things. All right, fearless ability. We've seen this ability before in 5e. Basically, you have advantage on uh, to avoid or end the frightened condition. Okay, why this is so freaking funny to me, and this is something I ranted about in Fizzbands. Okay, uh, dragons in 5e, up until Fizzbands, had frightful presence. Mm-hmm. It was the most dangerous thing about dragons because they would frighten you, and then you couldn't do anything, all right? They completely nerfed that in Fizzbands and got rid of it. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, I know, right? But then they keep giving creatures that encounter dragons fearless. They keep on doing it. Fearless means nothing now because dragons can't even frighten you. So it's... That's odd because in Dragonlance, the stories talk about dragons flying over armies and frightening armies, and literally half the army would run away. Yeah, it got completely nerfed. If even if you look at like the new dragons that are in the like they added in a we don't get any a whole lot of new dragons, but we do get a uh we get a greater death dragon. We had death dragons, and yeah, they don't have frightful. They don't have any. They can't frighten people. Well, um, I would put that in if I was running dragonlance. Sorry, people. Yeah, you're gonna make a saving throw against fear. Kenders in the original setting were immune to fear. It was which makes sense, which is cool. It makes it so that you want to play a Kender then, because if you have a party in Dragonlance, if you're a Kender, dragons come in with frightful presents, you're the only one in the party who's like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. And the Kender can then help you push the story, because how many times as a GM, you're like, here's the scene, it's this creepy tomb, and you know the party's like, eh, we don't really need to go in there. Now you've got the players like a Kender, and you're like, I start opening the door and walk in. I want to know what's behind there. I would actually, as a GM, say, you know, again, if you were playing the Kender, hey, Tom, yeah, everybody else is leaving, but uh, you need to make a saving throw against, you know, this Wanderlust, because you really want to know what's behind that door. As a Kender, you need to know. Like, it's just, you don't even realize you're doing it. You're now starting to, like, it, once you fail the saving throw, you're starting to open the door. They also gave him a taunt ability, which was 
a throwback kenders they would taunt enemies that was part of playing a kender that's one of the parts i got frustrating for players because sometimes people don't understand what a good taunt is versus crossing the line so that's one that again if somebody was playing it i would make sure hey use your taunt be you know be mindful of everybody else at the table use your taunts the right way you know if you want to role play them go ahead you know i could be like haha you know i stole your glasses haha you can't see me type taunt that's fine but don't push it over the edge yeah don't be annoying okay <clears throat> yep. don't give kenner's bad name Okay, mm-hmm. so then we get some we get some backgrounds and a sorcerer subclass. I'm gonna skip the sorcerer sub subclass because it's just kind of it's a they add a lunar sorcery. Um, I'm sure that means something to Dragonlance people, but they don't talk about this at all in the adventure, like why this thing exists at all. So I'm like, okay, I don't care. Its powers are honestly not even that great. I'll let you read that yourself. But what's very interesting is the backgrounds. All right. Not necessarily the lore of the backgrounds, which, Chris, if there's lore you want to talk about, mm-hmm. please do. What I care about is the mechanical aspects of these backgrounds because backgrounds are cool in 5e. I enjoy them for the roleplay element they give, but they don't really add anything super mechanically other than a little power here and there. In this, they introduce the concept of doing background feats. So when you're at first level, you get a feat, uh, and those feats are skilled or tough, which are from the player's handbook. All right. Then at fourth level, you get another feat based on your based on your background, and these feats are actually kind of awesome. So like if you're playing the Knight of the Rose, you can just give people one d8 plus your proficiency bonus plus the ability modifier. Um. Uh temporary hp so this could be upwards of 16 to 20 hp that you're giving somebody like knight of the sword you get to actually frighten creatures and it's because of how how it stacks and it's not just your proficiency bonus but also your ability score like i said these they they could be rolling like 17s or 18s like as the save this is some crazy good feats in here they actually the reason i wanted to bring this up is because in the latest one dnd play test they start introducing this idea of feats with backgrounds so uh, i'm not sure chris if you had the the two backgrounds are the knights of Solmania. is that how it is salamnia salamnia and then you get the mages of high sorcery i'm assuming these people are very important 100 um, percent. okay i'll start with the mages in the Dragonlance setting, magic is controlled by the Council of Mages. If you don't go through the test, you're considered a renegade. Any wizard that's part of the Council or accepted by the Council uh, can basically take you out at any time. It's very governed. It's very controlled. One of the big things, though, is all the mages, their sole focus, or not sole focus, but they're, they all have the common goal of magic's going to survive we're going to ensure that magic exists they have three different types of mages but they all have that main thing in common so the white robes are your good guys your red or your neutral and black are kind of your evil wizards no matter what they're not going to do anything that's going to damage or hurt magic long term they might vie for power against each other but they're still going to have that common thread amongst them 
and they all went through the test at the, the Tower of High Sorcery. Otherwise, again, they're a renegade. I like that because it adds a really cool element of role-playing into it. It's not just chaos magic everywhere. It's controlled. Yeah. Very high intelligent characters and, and beings that do magic would understand it needs to be controlled. So I think that makes sense as far as a world building. Now, the Knights of Salamnia, and I should probably throw this out there. The way I pronounce things is just the way I've always pronounced it. Somebody out there is probably screaming that I pronounced it a little wrong, but eh, it works for me. They actually have a pronunciation guy here, and it is Solamnia, so you're yep. correct. Perfect. The Knights are an interesting concept to me, and I'll try to keep this as brief as I can, because throughout all the history of the Knights, there's so much politics involved, but at the core of them is the Oath and Measure, which is their moral guidelines that they have to follow. Most people would think of this as kind of your traditional paladin of you don't steal, you don't murder, you don't torture people, that kind of stuff. As a knight, you're sworn to protect the innocent. You're, you're supposed to be the utmost of honor and respect. Now, through the stories, those knights have politics within each other where they aren't always the nicest to each other, um, which I think is a neat concept. But you also have within there the three different types of knights. So the Knight of the Crown, they're much more about cooperation and loyalty. Uh, the Knights of the Sword, they're much more about combat. And then the Knights of the Rose, which is your top kind of rank, they're all about leadership. So you kind of pick one, which kind of determines how your knight is supposed to be kind of played. In the stories, the Knight of the Rose was always kind of the, the top order of knights. And you yep. could go from you know a Knight of the Crown to being a Knight of the Rose. But that's a lot of role playing. Yeah, they uh, they I love I I love orders of knights. These are way better than the purple dragon knights that are in uh Forgotten Realms. I dig these a lot. Also, non-spoiler cuz they are on the front cover. Lord Soth is in this book and he was a uh, knight of the rose. So, yes. I yes. Yeah, he's, he's a great. He's awesome. I'm not going to lie when I saw he was in this book, I was like, "Well, TPK haven't done one of those in a while. Okay, I'm gonna. There's something I really want to talk about this, and I want to. I'm gonna wait until we get to chapter okay. seven. Okay, so let's jump into the. We're gonna go through each of the chapters briefly to kind of talk about what they are. Okay, chapters three and four. All right, we get an intro chapter: how to introduce the characters into the world of Kryn and also the story itself. Uh, chapter, uh, and then we get into this whole idea of this village. All right, this is the village that's gonna be raised. Okay. Uh, Chris, what did you think about this first, this first chapter, this intro chapter? This is what's going to kick off your campaign. Is it good? Uh, you're talking about the, the little mini. No, yeah, no. We can. No, we, th there's many things I could care less about. Those okay. I'm talking about the actual like first part of the adventure. The okay. party is assembled. They are ready to go. I liked it. It captures the feel of a, a kind of a Dragonlance tale of. You're going to be introduced to some major characters. Your your PCs are going to be thrown into this little, you know, th this village, and you're asked to be part of this festival. And then everything goes wrong, and now you have to deal with it. But the nice thing is, spoiler, you really can't. I don't want to say you can't win it, but 
at the end of it, you aren't necessarily saving the town. Yeah, that's a good point. I think this is kind of a running theme in this adventure. And it, this adventure, it really does, not just the dragons. It shares a lot of DNA with the very first 5th edition campaign, which was uh, Tyranny of Dragons. The reason that it shares a lot of inspiration with it is because that was a very epic adventure. With epic stories, there's a lot of stuff that's on the rails. Things happen that you're not going to be able to deal with big things yes. um some people got upset about that and i feel like they did a better job with this to giving players agency but yeah there's these moments where it's just stuff's gonna happen but what's cool is at the end of this depending on what you did the village is still going to be destroyed but certain things are going to carry over based on how you did this it captures the feel of you know I i'm an average person that just got thrown into a war I'm not necessarily going to be the hero and win everything. There are times when I have to make other decisions to to help the situation. It, it also builds that whole, we're not winning, we're not winning, we're not winning, we're not winning. Bam, we win. You know, it, it kind of builds a little bit of that dread until you can get to that scene where you, you actually get to win. And I like that because it's just, it's not you just, kill something, collect treasure, kill something, collect treasure, you're building a story. And I like it when stories have the PCs, you know, fail in a way. Or Yeah. This was I enjoyed this because I think that it it makes the adventure this and this is a running thread and actually I I like this. I'm not gonna bury the lead. I like this adventure because it feels very cinematic. All yes. right. This this adventure that the stakes feel really high and it just feels really cool. Where a lot of the more recent D&D official adventures, they just stakes just don't feel like they're there. You're just kind of, the characters just kind of existing in a mm -hmm. world. Whereas this, it just feels like, oh, there is something happening and I need to figure out what's going on. Uh, very reminiscent of like, like I said, that's why I love Tyranny of Dragons. I think Curse of Strahd is a great campaign for that reason. I think this is a great campaign for that reason. The other thing I really like about this intro chapter is it in introduces a few NPCs that are in this entire adventure, so you get to see them grow. So there's a an ally NPC that you mm -hmm. get that you get to follow along, um, and then there's also a couple bad NPCs that you get to see them, and it's so satisfying because these evil NPCs they start out as just kind of like your normal corrupt town villagers, and then as it progresses, like they start to grow more powerful and it is just at the end you get to confront one of them and that would be so satisfying as a player an annoying npc that's evil that you know is evil but nobody else believes you and then at the end you finally get to say see i told you and now i'm gonna kill you and that just that to me, I'm reading that. I'm like, yes, this feels right. So I agree. It's almost like there's another group playing on another table. They're playing their side of the war. You're playing your side of the war, and that NPC is leveling up at the same kind of pace you are. I, again, I like that too. Um, but I also like named bad guys that just keep reoccurring and messing with the party. I, I also liked in here they introduced a couple of NPCs that if you're not a big Dragonlance fan, you start to see some of the bigger kind of world building things. Like in here, they bring in a gnome. Gnomes in Dragonlance aren't your 
I don't want to say they're not your typical gnomes. They, the one thing they left out, no, I'll get to that in a second, but <clears throat> gnomes are engineers and builders. They generally have a life mission. They pick one thing that they have to figure out how to solve. So most of them have this passion to keep inventing and keep building things until they meet their life mission. In this, you know, in this scene, you meet a gnome, and he has his gnome flinger, which is really just a catapult that you throw people with, which is right out of one of the old books, because in Mount Nevermore, uh, that's how they get up levels. They, they have their elevator system, which is literally just a series of catapults that throw people from one side to the other, and you get caught in nets. I think it's a neat concept, adds a little bit of nerves for a player, because, you know... If it's your favorite and you know PC, and I'm like, all right, Tom, jump on this uh, catapult. I'm going to throw you across this, you know, 60 foot, you know, chasm, and uh, hopefully you get caught in this net. Or in this case, you have a backpack, and you hope you can pull the lever, and the balloons come up, and you float down, and not smash into the wall. So, I think it adds a neat little bit of lore. It kind of introduces players to this is what a gnome should be. The one thing they left out is gnomes. Their names are super long. So in-game, if you don't, when you go to ask a gnome their name, if you don't remember to say, give me the short version, they generally take a really deep breath and they start just rattling off word after word after word as their name is incredibly long. And I wish they would have done that. I wish they would have just put a little note in here saying, if PCs forget to ask gnomes short name, start rattling off, you know, van, blah, 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 blah. And keep going until one of the PCs goes, stop, stop. The short version. Oh, Than. You know, it just would have been a neat little nod back to the lore of it. But I like the fact they threw that in here. It kind of added a little. Also, it added that little touch of that lore to it. It also adds a little bit of humor into what's kind of a dark chapter. You know, because now you have to jump on this little gnome gnome flinger that's going to throw you across this canyon. I mean, there's other ways around it, but I'm as a PC, I'm jumping right on that gnome flinger. Let's yeah, go. it's a cool, it's something cool that players are going to interact with. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this, the next part, chapter, the really the only thing I want to say about this next section is Ville is destroyed, you wind up in a city, this is Calaman, this is going to set, this is a, a central hub for this adventure, uh, and this chapter winds up Ending with Soth, Lord Soth, okay, uh, coming in to the city, all right, sneaking in with some of his, uh, his knights. They they pretend they're you know knights of Solania or Solamnia, and because Soth needs something, this power that's underneath the city, um, so uh, he's trying to get this. Uh, this. The end of this is one of the darkest things I've ever seen in 5th edition. Uh, spoilers. Okay, so if you're listening and you're going to play this, hit that skip 30 seconds button. Okay. Uh, yeah, they just come in and they murder a ton of people. And it's brutal. Like, I just haven't seen a scene like this in 5th edition. The writing is very reminiscent of a game like, honestly, Forbidden Lands or Simbarum, more darker games. They literally, it just says it's like blood and viscera all over this throne room. They kill them. And Soth gets this power. 
I was like, okay, this adventure is much darker than most fifth edition stuff. That's Lord Soth, though. Yeah. If you know his history, he's, for centuries, he's been a death knight. He's given up on any concept of redeeming himself. He's fully embraced. The only way he's ever going to escape his fate is for Tikisis to win, and he will do whatever it takes. He has no qualms about murdering an entire village or one person or the world if he needs to. Like he is kind of the embodiment of evil in a lot of ways. He's an awesome character. I just he's got an interesting backstory. Uh he is absolutely he doesn't care like what the players are doing in the sense that he won't be taunted by them. He is driven and he will do what he needs to do. And I yeah, it's very, I, I enjoy a well-written bad guy, and they wrote Soth really well in this, where the players, they want to kill him, but there's, whether they can or cannot, uh, they kind of, that's a, a dicey thing in here. It says in the book, like, don't let players fight Soth. And I'm like, eh, don't put him in here, or don't stat him up if you're not going to let him fight him, uh, because he's going to kill him, so. 100%. He's he is supposed to come in and invoke fear. He has no fear of the PCs because they're they're flies to him. He has no fear of them because he knows he's so much more powerful than they are. He's one of my favorite bad guys ever, just because of how he's written, how you can describe, you know, here is this knight in armor that's charred. All you can see are these two glowing eyes the yeah he's super cool uh i I love it he gets word of death so he can just like once a day yeah you take a hundred necrotic damage i'm like and you're just dead i'm like that's awesome uh so soth comes in he gets this power and he's gonna take it somewhere all right and the players have to find it all right this leads into i think arguably one of the best chapters in any adventure (laughs) all right and chris you can tell this is just i know this is i think it's this so good because i enjoy hex crawls okay um this is not for everyone in the sense that uh it's a very roundabout uh, what was what's been an adventure on the rails becomes not on the rails and they it's a hex crawl and they do a really good job introducing uh, you need to find soft this is a land. You are traveling out into these wastes with one of your friends in a retina of the the army of Calaman. You need to find Soth and where he's going with this power. Go forth. And as you travel throughout the hex, you find you could just randomly stumble upon where he is, but you also there's more places that will give you clues about where he is so you can travel closer. Um I don't know, Chris, what do you think about this fifth chapter uh, hex crawl thing? I enjoy them too. Again, like you said, not for everybody. I know not everybody likes a you, you, hex crawl, dungeon crawl. I like it. I really like it also as a GM because this gives me time to keep building up kind of the, the, the war that's going on. And when I'm ready, if I want to, I can be like, oh, the next hex, you find it. 
the I think it's great too because unlike a lot of fifth edition stuff with travel, they kind of hand wave some stuff in the sense of like, um, yeah, you don't need to do this if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. They they'll say this stuff in the text. Um, it, this doesn't do that. It doesn't hand wave anything. It's like yeah, no, you can move. You can move if you're moving slow with the army. You can travel for nine miles a day. If you're not with your army, you can go, which is what they recommend you do, is not travel directly with the army to go ahead. You can travel 15 miles a day. So you can go through like three or four hexes or something like that. And I love this. So you can find an adventure site, explore it, while the rest of your army is catching up with you. Uh, It's great. The hex map is also awesome. And I feel like this is the first time I've seen them do travel well in 5th edition. And the thing that makes it, they don't do anything like crazy unique for 5th edition or adding any crazy rules. They just add some very cool locations on a hex map. They add some random encounters, some environmental conditions, and they basically just don't hand wave it and say, you must do this. And I think that is a strength. And I, I think it's great. I think it works out really well. I do too. They also I, add in some of the lore. You know, okay. There's what I really like about this whole thing is you know they started off your you know on the northern part of the continent. You're pretty much kind of in your own little region. You, know, you hear stories about the elves and all their conflicts and stuff, and as you go through this whole story, you start getting more pieces of that. So as a GM, if I'm playing with people who aren't really big Dragonlance fans, this gives me a chance to build the world in their mind. Because the elves are split. You have three different factions, well, four technically if you count the sea elves too, and they don't cooperate real well. They Actually, there's a lot of tension between the different factions. So I think that's kind of neat how they introduce some of that stuff as they're going. They also, they also introduce some other characters in here. You know, Dalimar's mentioned. Those that are big Dragonlance fans, Dalimar becomes a big character in the world later on in the stories. So it's neat for me to see him thrown in here. Not everybody's going to catch that. They're not going to be like, oh my God, this becomes Raceland's apprentice? Yeah, I didn't catch that. You wouldn't know that because you've never read the stories. You wouldn't know that, you know, and and down the road, Dalimar's going to be Raceland's apprentice and kind of, in a way, try to, to overthrow what, Raceland's doing and you know, again, yeah that's neat for me being the hardcore Dragonlance fan I like how they weaved in some of these other characters yeah I just can't speak highly enough of this chapter it's just because so many of the locations tie into other locations so if you find this particular temple in the city and then you run into these elves you can tell them about the temple, then they can tell you where to find Soth. Like, it's like, so there's like these different things that it's not like you're just aimlessly wandering. The locations are tie into other locations and it doesn't feel linear at all. Um, It's great. Uh, I think it's awesome. One thing I think we should kind of mention, each chapter, it tells you when to have the characters level up. Yes. Which I think is kind of important because you know, we're chasing Lord Soth, it tells you when to level up to make that kind of work. I think if you didn't and you just went on, you know, oh, we're going to do XP or other milestones, it it would make it too difficult to complete the mission. 
And I like how they're like, okay, after this part of this chapter, level the characters up. At the end of this chapter, they should be at this level. And I kind of like that. It, I, I like the milestones versus XP and stuff like that when they do that in games. Yeah, milestones, is, this is another DNA with uh, Tyranny of Dragons. Very similar. Um, very similar. Um, so, uh, great chapter. All right, eventually, though, the characters uh, find where Soth is. Mm-hmm. And they find that it is this ancient site uh, tied into the original cataclysm, this lost city. Uh, they're trying to do something, some ritual with the city, trying to raise it up and... I guess get do basically do what you know led them to the original cataclysm. I think that's what's going on. The dragon army is trying to get some power, so you get to actually go into this lost city, uh, and it's cool because it's more of you go from a hex crawl to more of a very big dungeon crawl. But it's not really a dungeon because it's a lost, it's a open air city, but it feels like a dungeon because it's uh, you know, I don't know, how to say it ruins and mm-hmm. stuff uh but your army is with you now and the whole the premise of this chapter is they're distracting the dragon army that is encamped here while you get to slip into this city to figure out what's going on and potentially stop any rituals that the dragon army is going to do that may cause Calaman pain later on so uh What'd you think about this chapter? Very, very reminiscent right out of the the first Dragonlance book. The heroes of the Lance end up in, in old ruins like this where they have to find, you know, something from the cataclysm that it, or pre-cataclysm that's gonna help, you know, help them along their quest. Spoiler if you never read the books. Uh basically Goldmoon is a character in there who found a blue crystal staff of of the god Miskakale. In this temple, they're trying to find the discs. The discs kind of talk about Miskakale, and it's kind of like a book in a way that helps them bring the gods back in a way. This, yeah. to me, felt very similar to that as far as here's an ancient ruins from the cataclysm. You have to go in here and find something that's going to help your side win the war. It's cool. There is a lot of crazy temples here. Sm- I like it. It's, it's small locations in a larger location. And the entire time that you're running into dragon, you're trying to avoid. You, you, this can be a very stealthy chapter. You're trying to avoid the dragon army. Um, and what I would encourage you, if you're running this adventure, uh, very at the beginning, your session zero, tell people that, hey, I'm not going to, don't hold back your punches. All right. Mm-hmm. Be willing to let your characters die because it's a most it's supposed to be a grim dark setting and the reason i bring this up is because there's uh you find eventually find the temple of paladine uh where you can recreate the dragon lance which i think is cool but then there's also just this thing is when you recreate the dragon lance if a character has died in the adventure you can just bring them back to life and they are there so there's op- there's lots of opportunities to die but not just this. There's a lot of opportunities for resurrection. So it just, if like I said, it feels, it just lends itself to this epic nature where characters have died, but they can come back. It's like a, I don't know, it's, it feels good. It feels yeah. good. They also put in this chapter, anybody who's playing a, a wizard, 
here's where you take your test for the uh, in oh, the Tower yeah. of High Sorcery. I thought that was unique because by now you're what eighth, eighth, ninth level, somewhere in there. I'd have to look at it. The original setting characters usually took that test right around second or third level. So now you've put it later in you know the PC's progress. I thought it was kind of neat that they pushed it further back because the the test is supposed to be brutal. A second a second level character. I mean, let's be honest; it's not hard to kill a second level wizard. It says in the book that if you fail the test, you die. Mm-hmm. Like that's so. that's how it was in the original Dragonlance. <laughs> Wizards that took the test went into it knowing you f- pass or you die. Okay. There's no eh. You got a C, Tom. Good enough. No, it's either you pass this or you die. And that was the sacrifice they were willing to make for the magic. And I, I always really liked that. Now, it discourages players from playing a wizard in a way because you're like, well, at some point I have to face this test, which if the GM doesn't like me or doesn't like the character, I'm dead. They tell you how to run it. They tell you how to gear it towards good characters, evil characters, neutral characters, and how to gear it towards making it a, a, a neat test for the player. I like how they did that. I mean, the, the test is supposed to test your skill with magic. It's also supposed to test your abilities without magic. You know, that it's going to happen. Wizards aren't always going to have all their spells, so how are you going to deal with situations when you don't have magic? So I, I liked it. I thought it was neat that they threw that in here. Eventually, this leads to a uh, con- confrontation with one of Takesis' dragon generals who's trying to do this ritual. It's not Soth. And uh, you you kind of interrupt the ritual, but it still gets off somehow, like a little bit. And uh, part of this city starts to float, all right? A floating fortress. And you have to get off of this. It's crazy. It's very Indiana Jones-esque. You need to escape this thing. And this is when you see at the end of this chapter, you realize that Soth is like flying in the air on a death dragon with this flying citadel. And they are headed towards Calamon. All right. And you have to book it back to the city so that they can prepare themselves. All right. There is a this element of your friend that's been with you since the very beginning is like, you guys go, I will lead the army back. And so you rush back to the city, and that leads us to the last chapter, the Siege of Calaman. Uh, honestly, kind of a brief chapter, the end chapter, because if you have a if you were to kind of describe this book, each of the sections feels very different. Mm-hmm. The beginning feels very classic D and D. All right, then you have a hex crawl, then you have a big dungeon crawl, and then you have an epic encounter. All right, and that's what I would describe this last thing as: and this big, large scale, epic encounter. Uh, this is a very doom and gloom scenario for the city. Like, there's all these random charts about hey. How are how are people feeling dread? And it's just like it's very trying to hit home that this is not a good scenario for the people. Like death is coming. Hundred percent. I mean that's the, the flying citadel. Again, that's right out of the books. 
They had okay. the flying citadels. Tachesis used them all around uh, the continent that most of the, the war happens on. I, I like it. It's a throwback. You know, again, being a Dragonlance, you know, hardcore fan, I like the throwbacks to that kind of stuff. I like the fact that you get to deal with it. It builds up, like you said, all that doom and gloom to here's the final bad guy. You know, this is this is the end bad guy in the movie. It's time you face the, you know, great evil and either overcome or lose the land. You know, if if it's run right, I think this is the moment where the GM really says to the players, it's up to you to save this part of the continent and save this area from falling into Takesis' hands. Yeah, it very much feels a moment of desperation, which is really cool. My favorite pieces of this, this is where you finally get to encounter this bad guy this who has been annoying you since the very beginning. And they have grown as a character. You have grown as a character. So they're now um, like flying, like this flying a dragon, like a dragon knight with super cool armor. And you're now a super high level MP, a character, and you get to fight them. And I'm like, this feels just really cool, really anime esque. I love it. Uh, eventually, though, you are like, okay, we've got to get to this flying citadel. All right. Uh, you, whether you fly on a dragon L or get. Use a gnome flinger. It leaves it up to the players. How do you get onto the flying citadel? And this is where Soth is trying to do his this ritual, all right? And basically destroy a bunch of stuff. Uh, this section was a little weird for me because they start throwing in vampires. And I'm cool with vampires, <laughs> but they didn't really fit. Really, I'm like, okay, I'll use some vampires. Um, but there's they throw in a lot of NPCs that I feel like it kind of this last section is just super overwhelming. I would say, yeah, I uh, is didn't really work for me. Uh, this is and then you finally get to confront Soth, whether you let the characters fight him or you do something else, you just got to be a real careful here. I, I think backing up to your vampires, there's a, a little section they talk about Chemosh. Uh, yes. It, it's just a brief little, you go to his shrine, you can actually get kind of buffed by him. You get little gifts, golems, that kind of stuff. The lore is Chemosh is actually one of the gods of evil, but there's a subplot that he's always been trying to overthrow Takesis so he can become the big bad god. I okay. think that's where they're pulling the vampires in because Chemosh is the god of the undead. This is interesting too. I'm, I I like that you point out that they kind of are bringing in these other elements because eventually this chapter ends final confrontation with Soth, and it very much ends on a cliffhanger, in the sense of and now they want you to go like the war is going on now. So I like the element like you could now introduce these this element of Chimosh, um, in as well. I, I love it when. PCs are pulled into the battle between the gods directly. And yeah. when you realize, oh no, I've kind of been a pawn in this game the whole time. And now you can kind of look at the knights and go, or the, the, the gods and go, I'm no longer a pawn. I at least want to be a bishop in your game. 
It's cool. I, I mean, there's a lot of stuff happening at the end here. And now I want to tie into this. That's kind of the, the end right there. But I want to tie this into how we would change the adventure. This, All right. Because this thing that I kind of left out is this last two pages of the adventure. You finally fight this person named Kansaldi Fire Eyes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Who's the leader of this dragon army. It's the character that's on the front of the cover on the dragon. But... They are not in this adventure at all until the end. And it is very annoying because they kind of pitch this, oh, this is the big bad. Um, No, this is not the big bad. Soth is the big bad in this adventure. Um, And why are you pretending any otherwise? This, Kansaldi, um, is a very poorly written bad guy. Uh, What I would do is completely remove this character from the game you literally can do this and it doesn't affect the adventure at all uh is very weird why i don't understand what this character is doing and it was very annoying it is probably the worst part of this book this character so that's what i would change remove her let soft be the main bad and just say it I don't know. Chris, what do you think about this? Then how would you change the adventure? Traditionally, in a lot of the books in Dragonlance that I can remember, the big, quote, bad guy that, that kind of led a section of Takesis's army that the main characters fight, you they do defeat him pretty quickly. And a lot of that is because Takesis always kept her truly powerful minions held back from being the figureheads. She's willing to put a face out there and let that face get defeated, but really her true power is behind them. You, you, you don't put your best foot forward, so to speak, to have it chopped off too early. You, you save your big bad guns till you absolutely need them. So to me, it made sense how they have this character come out and you're like, oh, yeah, that's not really the big bad guy. You know, the big bad guy leaves, Soth does his thing, and you just fight kind of a almost a figurehead that Takesis threw out there. I mean, by no means is, is are they just a complete pushover. I mean, they are, a, they are a challenge level 11, which by this time I believe your character should be 11th level, 10th or 11th level. Um, so you are kind of designed to beat this person and get that victory in. Very much so. It, you will wreck, the, your characters will wreck this person. The uh, just the way it works is due to challenge levels. A challenge level 11 is meant for four characters, level 11. So obviously she's got a dragon, mm-hmm. uh, which you were kind of alluding to at the beginning. Uh, but yeah, I, I, this is very weak character too. She doesn't do a whole lot of damage, but... They were charismatic leaders. They weren't necessarily the warriors. You know, in the very first book, the, the main bad guy... His mace, when he hit, he, I, th- I want to say the word was like nightshade or some, he'd say a key word and you just went blind for some X number of rounds. Okay. So it really didn't do damage. It allowed you as the GM to build a little tension by, all right, Tom, I hit your character, make your saving throw, you're blind. Okay. So now you're struggling to hit this and it gave you a chance to build up this, you know, dragon high lord. And the tension of, oh my God, are our characters really going to die? I don't know if this 
necessarily is going to capture that kind of tension of, oh my God, we're going to die because we're all blind or not. You know, I'd be curious to run the actual combat with this character and see how that plays out. Yeah, I just, yeah. I always think it's just funny when you get to a section of an adventure where you don't even need to modify it to kind of make it work. You can just remove it. You can edit that out. But uh, so before we actually get to the appendices, appendices, appendici, appendixes, um, appendices, uh, we are going to be joined by a special guest. All right. Uh, That special guest to talk about the Warriors of Kryn board game section that we have not talked about yet that is tied into this that special guest is michael ross hey that's me okay uh michael thanks for joining us uh you we you wanted to talk about the warriors of kryn which is the board game tie-in so yes gets mentioned a lot in this book there's little sidebars what is this thing dragonlance warriors of kryn is an attempt this is michael talking here to include mass combat rules in a D&D game. That is something that d and I feel like has struggled with since its inception. And you know, a lot of DMs have their own way of handling it because it's something that comes up a lot in D&D campaigns. Like this is a massive battle. Like there's hundreds, if not thousands of people on each side. How do we have our characters participate in a way that feels like we're still playing D&D, but it scales up to you're affecting the you know, gigantic tide of battle that's turning one way or the other. Um, it's interesting. So there's a little bit of background. And again, I've talked to neither of you, so I have no idea what you've said about the book. I have no idea if you're positive or negative, or whatever. So this is just me coming in to do this part and getting the heck out of here. <coughs> so this game is created, it was designed by Stephen Baker and Rob Davo, Davio. So Steven is a longtime Hasbro employee and a game designer. He's got 47 credits on Board Game Geek, including various Space Crusade games, Lord of the Risk Ring, or Lord of the Rings Risk, and a whole bunch of HeroScape expansions, as well as Battlemasters and Axis and Ally Specific. Rob is a very well-known game designer with 136 credits, including Axis and Ally Specific with Steven, a whole bunch of the various betrayal, like Betrayal House on the Hill games, including the Scooby-Doo one for which I play with my kids. Uh, Death May Die, and or excuse me, Cthulhu Death May Die in various expansions, the new Fireball uh, Island game and expansions, a bunch of uh, HeroScape expansions, and then P- Pandemic. And I think that's a key one for what this game does. And I only mention that because I just want people to realize that Hasbro didn't go cheap here. Like These are really well-known and very like, uh, you know, well-regarded game designers. It's not like they're just like, hey, you know, you two people come over here and design this game. Like they put a lot of time and effort into creating this game. So the, the blurb on the box, Warriors of Kryn is a battle game that allows you to play out massive military battles in the world of Kryn. It may be played standalone or in conjunction with the Shadow of the Dragon Queen campaign for 5e. So when major battles break out in the story, you can then break out the board game. Your characters from the RPG become important into these battles. You can keep playing your characters in the board game, um, and you can learn what the amazing, incredible, heroic things they can do in this battle. Uh, it's a three to five player game. And it basically, it's, you know, if, if you've played games like Pandemic before, it kind of works like that. The game runs itself. So you have various scenarios. I think there are 12 there's scenarios 12. 12 in, in the the book for the game. And then there's a, there's a starting level, like how to play that isn't tied to anything. It's just like, this is how you learn the rules. Um, 
And so the idea is that, of course, at certain points in the RPG campaign, a battle is breaking out and then you can jump over and play this board game and see how your characters deal with that game here. Uh, it is very much an abstraction of mass battles. You have little tokens that represent your foot soldiers, uh, mounted soldiers and archers, and you will have battle lines like the enemy will have so many, you'll have so many. Um, your your heroes, the player heroes, uh, will have classes and they have abilities that are flavored based off of the class that they have in the game. So like bards can be better at inspiring, rogues will be better at sneaking, fighters will be better at hitting stuff. Uh, there are There are ways for you to play the game where you can lose the battle but still win the scenario because like maybe your your objective is to take out one of the enemy commanders, I mean, enemy generals. So even if your army gets wiped, if you accomplish those objectives, then you can technically still win. And I do think that's a very smart way of handling this because you don't want to be playing a, you know, a year long RPG campaign. And then on the fourth scenario, jump into a board game and then die. And then like your characters die in the board game and so your campaign is over so it's kind of smartly designed that that's not going to happen so even if you lose the scenario that doesn't necessarily mean that your characters died it just means you didn't achieve the objectives that you were going for into that battle and so and again i haven't read the book so i don't know how that ties in but i'm sure it basically just kind of relates to um the next part of the campaign whether or not you have resources or allies or the kind of thing that you're up against uh so a couple more notes, I'll get, and then I'll kind of get into my um, review of it. Um, when you roll the dice, so it's a six-sided, basically, dice game. Uh, my line is attacking your line, or your line's attacking my line. The game will kind of tell you when this happens, and you can have, like, shifting battle lines, and you can have other events that happen. But basically, whoever has the most people rolls the die, or dice, I should say, and then you can have a single hit, double hit, a woe, which is when you actually take damage, even though you roll to attack, and then blanks. So you can get those situations like in Risk where you've got like that one lone Rambo-esque guy who's standing there and there's 37 people attacking, but they keep defending and, and then you die instead. So they can happen, but the math's not really in your favor there. Um, the pieces overall are pretty high quality. Like, you know, they're well-made. I, I have a bit of a quibble with the army representation figures because they're all just like these little rectangular nubbins. And then I think uh, one side's red, one side's purple. But they have just a slight variation, whether it's foot, archer, or mounted. I feel like they could have just done something really cool here, but they didn't. They went, I feel like, kind of cheap. I guess it would have been too expensive to put wooden tokens because there was a lot of them or to really design them. Um, it's just the cost would go up, but I just, uh, it was I just know. it was just cheap. It was just cheap. It was, it, it, but again, they they didn't go cheap in other ways. Like the there's the components are really good cardboard. They're printed well. The, the there's like six minifigs in there. You know miniatures. I just feel like that was an avenue where they did go cheap, but they didn't need to, or they maybe they shouldn't because the other places they didn't. Um, it's a weird game. Okay, so here's my so again getting to the room. It's a weird game. So it's three to five players. There are a lot of groups in D&D that have more than five players. So what happens if you're in a six-player group? So you have six players in a DM. You have seven players. How does that work? Do you just not get to do that? Or is it just excluding you from using this game? When you play it, the DM plays a character. They don't run the game because the game runs itself. <laughs> yeah. So then what's the DM doing? Like, I just, it, it's like a weird sort of hybrid. And I'm not sure who the game is for. If you're a diehard role player, I don't think you want to jump over and play a board game. 
And if you're a diehard board gamer, I don't know that this game is good enough to just be something that you're going to pull out and play outside of running the campaign. So I'm not sure. I'm just not sure who the game is aimed at. Now, I have not actually played it. I, I kind of set up the, the starter scenario and kind of trying to figure out the rules. I read a couple other reviews. I watched a video on how to play, but I haven't actually sat down and played the game with a group of people. I am going to bring this to our faculty retreat in March. I would love to get it to the table there. And if I change my mind, I will happily come back and, and talk about this again. But right now I'm really confused as to what this is, who it's for. I'll give them credit. I think it's an interesting idea. Like I don't want them to just, keep doing the same thing over and over again. I, I want them to try new things. This is a new thing. So I'm going to give them a B for effort that they want to do something unique. I know that Kren and Dragonlance is all about these huge wars and battles. So they wanted to do something. They could have just designed mass battle combat rules then let you keep playing D&D, but they didn't. And the biggest thing I have, and again, I hate reviewing a product on what it's not. I don't, I try not to do that, but I have done it a couple of times. Most recently, Citadels, Journey to the Citadels, I did that because I just thought that game could have been something better. Why not just make this like a 4E skirmish game? You know, because 4E's, that's what it is. And like, let us play our characters and, you know, ramp it up to squad base where each mini is a squad, not an individual person, but you could have your characters there who are acting as individuals. They still do the same thing. They, this turn, I'm going to heal this squad. This turn, I'm going to take out the general. This turn, I'm going to inspire this squad and use the same D20 and rolling crits and skill checks and armor class and hit points. I feel like that would have been a better avenue if they really wanted to do something here and be truly innovative rather than kind of making a board game that's somewhat related. So having not said all that, I'm going to give it overall again a B. Because okay. I think it's interesting. I, I do think the game could be fun. I just don't think it's, I don't think you're going to want to play it outside the campaign. And it's a weird thing. And I don't think it quite does what it should do. And I also think they could have done a much better job of making it feel like D&D and mass battles. And they just didn't. So B's really as high as I can go. With the caveat again, I haven't actually sat down with a group of players and played the game. When and if I get to do that, I will issue a, a retraction or an update but right now it's just a weird game i don't see myself playing it okay uh michael feel free to stick around we're about to wrap things up but yeah weird game that's what i've read from other reviewers too they don't know who it's for but it's designed and there are spots in this in the book in the campaign that tell you play this scenario on the board game this is you know, if this is the outcome of the game, here's what happens in the story. So I'm wondering if your kind of thoughts on it are because it's so geared towards tying in with the book that that's throwing it off for you a little bit. I don't think so because because again, that's part of the weirdness. Just as a hardcore role player, I don't think I want to like if I'm playing if you're if you're running the game and I'm playing the game and you're like, okay, we got to this big battle. We're now going to like end here next session. We're going to play this board game instead. I'm going to be like, no, I, I want to keep playing D&D. And if we go to a board game night and you're like, hey, I got this new board game I want to try. It's kind of based on this RPG that maybe we play or maybe you don't. I think the tying it in is actually the weirdest thing about it. Like, again, I give them credit for trying. I, I'm The innovation here, the attempt at something new, full credit. But I just don't think it does what it's trying to do well enough to overcome the inherent oddity of what it is. So I don't know. Again, once I play it, I'm not changing my mind, but I, I I get what they're trying to do. It just, it doesn't feel like something I would actually ever do. 
See, and I think I'm on the opposite side of that as a GM. You know, okay, I've run four really good sessions. Now I get to take a session where I get to just sit back and play a board game and relax. That kind of is refreshing to me to kind of have that little break for a game session, still hang out with my friends, still have that that game night, but it just takes that pressure off of me in a way. Or if I had a really bad day at work and we're going to play that night, I can come into the group and go, hey, look, man, no offense, guys, mentally, I don't have it in me tonight to really give you guys the game that I want to give you. Why don't we play this scenario of this board game and we can tie that into the story where it's supposed to. Okay. I think I can see that being an interesting way to use it. I would never use it if I'm running it, but no, I I do like the idea of like what you just said, Chris, this is how I would use it. Mm -hmm. If I don't want to play a session that night, or if not all my players are going to join, we're going to play that game because we typically play board games anyway. If, Mm -hmm. if everybody can't make it. So, why not play this to kind of keep everybody in the groove? Okay. Nice. All right. So uh, before we give our final thoughts on the actual adventure itself, we do get some monsters. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, Chris, were there any standout monsters here, adversaries that you want to talk about? Well, we didn't mention it before, but we have to talk about the Draconians. Okay. Yeah. What are the Draconians? In Dragonlance lore... There was a time when the good dragons had their eggs stolen. Takesis had, had the evil dragons steal them. And then there was oh, yeah, kind yeah. of a treaty made between the dragons on both sides that they wouldn't get involved with the war of the people. Meanwhile, behind the scenes, Takesis had her minions start doing rituals on these dragons' eggs and they became the Draconians. And you had different types of Draconians based on the eggs that were used. Like gold dragons, you had the Iraq dragon Draconians. And I know I butchered that name, but that's my speech impediment. Um, but they were they were basically your wizards. They were the most powerful of the Draconians. They threw spells. You know, they, they led things. Um, you have the different draconians have different abilities in the in the war, different roles. The fun part about them as a GM is if your players don't know what they are, as soon as they kill one, each one dies in a different way. So you have some that turn to stone, some that explode, oh, okay. some that turn to acid. So the draconians, when you beat them, you, you aren't done with it. You have to do something to avoid their death action their death throw or whatever i think they call it a death throw in here yeah death throw i didn't even realize that that is i i dig that that's sweet yeah the draconians in the storyline the characters discover them they're not something the characters are supposed to know what they are so when they're revealed it's supposed to be this new scary creature they've never heard stories of it if it's played right it should be frightening you walk up and you're like, oh, here's this priest wrapped up in these robes. And all of a sudden they turn around and they flip out these wings and claws and they look like a draconian. You should be scared. You shouldn't be like, oh, I pull out my sword and I stab it. You should be like, what in the world is that thing? You know, Maybe you run. I would. Okay. I'm not going to lie. But they're a very key part of Dragonlance because Takesis used them all over the place. 
and the different types. Like I said, there's the Iraq, again, I probably say it wrong, the Baz, you have the Bozek, you have the Kopec, um, and then you have the Sivak Draconians, all made from different types of dragon eggs. They all have different abilities, different roles. You have your fighter, your thief, your wizard, basically is their roles in the, in the army, and then their death throws are all different. I mean, I don't think we have to go too specific onto each one, but they're a very key part of the story. Yeah. My favorite thing about them is that they all have, uh, it says they have natural armor, even though they're all wearing like, metal armor. I'm like, mm, guys, why don't you just say it's just armor class 15? Don't put natural armor if they're not wearing natural armor. Freaking edit your books. It's like, <laughs> you know, honestly, but, I didn't even notice that. I just, yeah, that's that's the little pedantic things that I notice. Um, no, they're super cool. I didn't even notice the death throws. I dig them. That's cool. My favorite, my standouts here are. I already mentioned Soth is awesome. Uh, just so cool, so edgy. P- word of death, and then he can just do this giant cataclysmic fire and just like nuke everybody too. So, dude has like massive arsenal, like a massive arsenal of stuff. The other thing I wanted to point out, which I kind of said also, is the Kinsaldi fire eyes is supposed to be the main bad. I mean, you kind of said, Chris, that they're not meant to be warriors, but man, is she weak. She's got a really high armor class. That's cool. Um, but yeah, they don't really do a whole lot of damage. So it just kind of becomes, a, it's one of those battles that could become a slog. It's a little annoying. Um, there's some cool things in here. The skeletal knight that rides with Soth, those are also really cool. Basically, what I'm saying is that you just just have Soth in this game, and I understand why people like him. All right, there's some cool. I, I there's there's some. They, this bestiary is pretty sweet. Okay, so all right, here we go. Overall, uh, what what did we think about this? I'll start, Chris, um, and then you can kind of give us your opinion as a Dragonlance fan. All right, I'm gonna put this in the upper tier of adventures so this goes right up there with curse of strahd for me or tyranny of dragons and i kind of said because it feels epic uh there's a limited number of npcs in this game so it's not overwhelming i could totally like i can think of all the main npcs on like one hand and that's great it's easy i feel like it's simple for a gm to run this adventure uh which i think is is cool um i will say be prepared to put it on the rails a little bit, that's okay. The hex crawl chapter is one of the best chapters in Five E, uh, and I honestly think that the only like thing that is bad in this book is Kinsaldi Fire Eyes and the idea that she's supposed to be the big bad and she only shows up at the very end for two pages. They don't. The players don't care about her. They care about this annoying character that they met at the beginning, and they care about Soth. Those are your big bads. Just completely ignore Kinsaldi. And this is, I honestly, we're already talking. This is Michael. You'll appreciate this. Um, I'm talking about next, or this, yeah, in 2023, um, starting another in-person group and running this adventure. Um, so maybe moving back to 5e for this. So would I say buy this as somebody who doesn't know Dragonlands? And if you want to run a, if you're like, oh, I really want to run a Dungeons and Dragons campaign, 
uh run this do it uh there i would tell you run this run tyranny of dragons or run curse of strahd uh tyranny of dragons is going to be getting a re-release next year so if you want to get that and get this run a big old epic campaign this is this is it i i think this is the adventure for fifth edition so what what would your actual grade rating be oh i'm giving this it's got great art throughout except for one piece which i pointed out in my twitter thing that i got real salty about uh this is honestly when it, if you take all the D adventures and stack them all up against each other i'm gonna give it an a plus so wow. yep i'm giving it yeah, an a plus this is the, I'm, I'm hearing this in real time folks i had absolutely no idea what yeah. either of these people thought my guess tom being tom we were looking at a c plus maybe yeah. so because I haven't, I haven't cracked the book. Have not even looked at it, so I had it's no good. idea. It's good. Nice. It's also good to read. Also, like good tabletop games should be interesting to read. This is interesting to read. So I dig it. Now, Chris, yep. as this a dra- is our Dragonlance fan. Dragonlance fan, overall, what do you think about this? I really enjoyed it. I think for hardcore fans, it gives you the opportunity to, in a way play the characters from the books without actually playing those exact characters. You go through a very similar journey that they go through. You find out that gods are never really left Kryn, but that people left the gods, and you kind of have to bring that back in some ways. You have this epic campaign where you start off as, you know, kind of almost townsfolk and become heroes in this part of the continent. I enjoy that part of it. I like, I like how they introduce different parts of the lore through the different chapters. I think that's well done. I think they do a good job of capturing as much as some people may argue. I think they did a really good job with how they have the Kender laid out. <laughs> I okay. think it fits. I think they did gnomes a really good justice of what they are on Kryn. They didn't get too much into the war with the elves and the dwarves. They left that kind of in the background, which is fine. For your characters, it probably would be in the background. You're hundreds of miles away from those areas. So that makes sense. As a GM, I I have to ding them on the one thing that I hate they do in modules. Oh, what's that? They talk about an encounter and they go, use such and such template from this book. Okay, yeah. Now I've got to grab another book to have a two paragraph section that tells me how to run that. Why couldn't you just cut and paste and put it in here so I don't have to have five books open. Just put it in here. Keep it easy for the GM who's probably already got books open, a GM screen, dice, notepad. Just put it in there. I mean That's your, a fair argument. Your first yeah. your first encounter is with a guard. So just use a guard template. You it's two paragraphs. That's all I need. And then I could run it. To me I thought it was kind of a way of saying you have to have these books to do it. Um, which I get it. They're a business. They want to sell you all the books that they can. Uh, again, though, to me, those are already out there. Just put it in the book for me. Make it easier for me to just look at it real quick. Uh, all that means is as a GM, as I prep it, I'm going to have all those notes written out. I'm not going to actually open the books. So right, yeah. minor critique there. Uh, I, I like the artwork. I know you didn't like the picture with what you thought was the giant mechanical chicken dropping Hated eggs. It. Oh my gosh. So bad. A little cartoony, but to me, they were trying to capture the feel of the, the gnome again, the, and the inventor that's supposed to be kind of outrageous and silly. I think they could have done it slightly better. 
the rest of the art I enjoyed. Um, again, I really enjoyed the book. I agree with you that it reads real easy. As somebody who is dyslexic and has trouble reading, I chewed through the book pretty fast. Yep. You know, same. I, I could, you know, reality twenty thirty pages in a, in a night is about all I can do before I'm done. I chewed through about sixty seventy pages a night and didn't have any problems, which is good for me. That also is exactly the same way I felt about the Dragonlance novels, which is why I was a huge fan of them because I could fly through them rather quickly. So you you capture that for me as well, you know. I, you know, I, I'd give it a strong A. Other than the yeah. minor editing things, where as a GM I've got to bounce back and forth. You know, they really captured everything for me. You know, I'm excited to get a group together and try playing through it and see how I do. I have never run Fifth Edition. I think it slowly pro- it progresses the characters in the right pace that'll help a new GM to Fifth Edition also not feel overwhelmed. Nice. That I think, yeah, we both love it. So what I really hope Wizards does is, obviously, 1D&D is 2024, so we got next year's releases. I really, really hope that they do what they did with Curse of Strahd, and they did the adventure, then they released the campaign setting. I hope that they do a setting book for Dragonlance, because... I want it because I want to run a campaign. I want to run this and I want that extra bits. So I think we both we both like this. All right. Absolutely. So, so I would say, you know what? Go pick it up if you're a dungeon master and you want to run a game. So I think this is they did a good good job. Wizards. Yay. I know you don't need my validation, but I typically don't validate you. So there you go. All right. So, uh, folks, that is our review of Dragonlance Shadow of the Dragon Queen. Uh, this is Tom. You can follow me at Bezcar Tom on Twitter. That's Mandalorian Metal Tom. Chris, where can people find you? And thanks again for joining me for the oh, review. Anytime. Uh, Burlu underscore Chris on Twitter. That's the easiest way to find me. Or uh, every other Wednesday, sitting around doing detention with Michael. Where we play silly nice. games and talk about where our fingers have been and okay. talk gaming. Very cool. All right. And let me let me thank our other special guest for joining us today. Uh one Michael Ross. Michael, where can people find you? You can find me at the RPG Academy on all the things, including Mastodon. Uh and don't forget Action 12 Cinema coming to a Kickstarter near you, February 2023. We're up to 68 people following the campaign. We're one away from the naughtiest of nice numbers. Is that the nicest <laughs> of naughty numbers? I'm not sure. It's nice. All right. So, Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks for, you know, slogging through a board game, all right, that you may or may not ever play. All right. Uh, we'll play it. Okay. Yeah, all right. Yeah, we'll play at the Packard Retreat. All right. Nice. Okay. Well, As always, it's the RPG Academy. This is the reviews. Uh, Let us know if there's something else that you would like us to review or if you have a product that you want us to check out. Uh, We can't promise that we will check it out, but you know what? If you want to shoot us a PDF, we will definitely, you know, put our eyeballs on it and see what we think. All right, folks. uh, Don't forget, uh, if you're having fun, you're You're doing doing it right. right. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. 
You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.